This is The Straight Dope, Episode 8, Practical Ballistics. Just the mention of ballistics either throws people overboard, brings out the nerds in the group, or people want to put on boxing gloves, do BJJ, whatever. I think a lot of that is because we're all often talking about different things in different applications. I don't particularly care for it, but I spent a lot of time researching it because it seemed to me that if I was going to make one shot, I should get a good grasp on my understanding of ballistics so that I could pick a caliber and a bullet weight that would apply across a variety of terrain and I wouldn't lead the shot up to a statistical probability. Rather, I could rely on the science, knowing that if my fundamentals were good, I would be able to make that shot. The following is a discussion on how I see ballistics as applied to practical shooting and the things that I like to do. I'm going to try to avoid as many technical terms as possible and generalize. Generalization tends to make some people very frustrated, and if I frustrate you, I'm sorry. It's something that I like to do. In general, the way I see bullets flying is that faster, lighter bullets tend to take the lead and do their job very quickly at a short distance. I'm going to say inside four or 500 yards. But there's a point where heavier bullets that are going slower will overtake them and continue to maintain their velocity longer than those smaller bullets, which is why we tend not to see those smaller, lighter bullets at matches that shoot past 500 yards. I'm well aware of people's practice of making 22 Creedmoors, 22 BRs to get those smaller bullets pushing a little bit further, but you have to restrict the parameters for those to be effective, and that's not what I'm interested in, so I'm going to skip over that. So how is it that I view these external ballistic factors when making a decision now? Well, some of it came through experimentation that started accidentally. One thing that I was testing uh, for over a year was slowing down the velocity of bullets because with my ballistic calculator, I was able to say that if I could shoot a group of a particular size, then a known range target, it shouldn't be an issue if it's going a little bit slower because I can dial up precisely the elevation that I need. I'd also noticed that a lot of good competition shooters were actually shooting slower and slower, those 105 bullets. And so I kind of got a kick out of going slower and slower, and I wanted to track my hit percentage. Because a lot of my training was done at 100 yards, though, I didn't get a chance to look at hit percentage training except for a few particular scenarios. So I'm going to talk about two of those scenarios that really changed my eyes. The way I viewed hit percentage was simply the shooter's ability to hit a target of a particular size based on the group size at 100. Now that was flawed for sure, but that's the way I went into this. What I wanted to do and realized I was going to be able to do happened at a PRS match in Oklahoma, followed by a match in Texas. Both of those matches, I was able to shoot the majority of the course of fire prior to the competition, one a month before and the other one a week before. I had my competition ammo and I was able to take, you know, the 70% of the match and figure out what my hit probability was. 
at the time for matches like that or those types of uh, scenarios, my hit rate was around 80%, 80 to 85%. And I thought it would be really cool to take my training ammo, which was 250 feet per second slower, and bring those back and shoot with those. So the the pre-shoot was with match ammo, knowing the course of fire, being able to understand how to put your bipod, tripods, so on and so forth. It made a lot of sense to me to take slower ammo and see if I could raise my hit percentage with that slower ammo, thinking that what was going to happen was I'd be able to see my shots better. And that's not what happened. In both instances, rather than having that 85% hit rate that I calculated during uh, those three, those four days shooting those courses of fire <clears throat> was that at the match with the slower ammo that was 250 feet per second slower, I had a reduction of about 30%. And my effective hit percentage was around 60, something like that. Now, in retrospect, it wasn't because I wasn't shooting right. It's because I didn't account the wind number effect on those bullets at the time. And this was a great education of live fire shooting that was then validated by rereading Brian Litz's book and playing around with his weapon employment zones. Those bullets that were shooting slower lost the 100% hit probability at those range that the match ammunition had because of that decrease in velocity. The reason the hit percentage went down wasn't because I didn't know the range. It was because the wind variation became much wider than the targets themselves, such that one mile an hour wind was now about three-tenths rather than one-tenth at the same range. So I'm going to revisit a concept that I brought up a few episodes ago, and that's the wind number. You can easily calculate the wind number of your rifle by going in to your Kestrel or your ballistics calculator. And what you're going to do is take out spin drift and figure out the wind speed such that that wind speed, when looking at different yardages, let's say 500 yards, your, your full value wind is 0.5, 600 yards, 0.6, 700 yards, 0.7. You'll figure out a wind speed that lines up to those yardages pretty close. Now, this isn't true ballistics. This is a trick, kind of like rapid target engagement changes and other tricks that you can do. But this trick works very well in determining what wind speed lines up with the effective yardage. Now, the thing is, <clears throat> my BR is a six mile an hour gun. So at 600 yards, one mile an hour is a tenth of wind. So at six miles an hour, if the target is 0.6 wide, and I aim at the center thinking that I've got a good you know, wind call, I've got quite a few miles an hour budget built into that target width. A six mile an hour gun is pretty standard for a competition shooter. My 308 is a three mile an hour gun. So at 300 yards, at three miles an hour, it's 0.3. What's interesting about the wind number is that the yardage that lines up with the miles per hour, beyond that, a mile an hour becomes less than a tenth. 
So something that you can't just adjust for. And because that becomes smaller and smaller, right, a six-mile-an-hour gun in a 12-mile-an-hour wind, you, you, you have, now you've got two-tenths. But those effects, they're linear. So a three-mile-an-hour gun at 600 yards, you've got half of a tenth per mile an hour. So you're essentially losing target width as you consider that. That is going to be the determining factor for the majority of shooters, if not all shooters, when shooting at a distance. When you look at the wind number, the small variations between BR, BRA, Dasher disappear almost entirely such that a shooter can't outshoot the difference between the wind numbers on most competitive targets. Thinking about ballistics with respect to your wind number can tell you a lot about whether you need to upgrade from your BRA to a Dasher or Dasher to a GT or whatever you're talking about because the differences that you end up seeing are minuscule. But when you look at a weapon employment zone calculator, you end up noticing that the hit probability in all those stays about the same. And Brian Litz goes on to graph a number of calculators, but it's something around 600 feet per second where you gain about 100 yards in the 100% hit category. So realistically speaking, a shooter's hit percentage is going to fall back on their win number and the win number being high enough to maintain the ability to stay within the target size for the given wind conditions. If you're shooting at a place like on the East Coast where lanes are cut in and the wind speed variation is only a mile an hour, you're going to be able to see slower bullets, faster bullets, all more or less perform the same. But places here like Colorado where we might have 12 to 24 mile an hour gusts, that 12 mile an hour bracket is going to essentially eliminate the probability of being able to hit with something that has a low wind number. And that's what I learned firsthand by doing these experiments on ranges that had courses of fire that I didn't predetermine, but I was able to compare a competitive speed, a six mile an hour gun with a slower mile an hour gun and see that that directly influenced the hit percentages that I was able to achieve essentially with the same rifle and a lowered wind number. Another cool element of thinking about wind number is the wind number of your rifle at the distance of its number. So if you have a three mile an hour gun at 300 yards, if you put up a target, you could effectively test and confirm your ability to read wind at a mile an hour level because you can measure it with the reticle. You can measure that 10th equals one mile an hour ability to judge the wind and you can do it in a way that's calibrated to your rifle system. Remember, pass that number and you're gonna have one mile an hour be, lo- be more than a 10th. So you're gonna start to very quickly lose the ability to stay on target with smaller and smaller wind variations. Essentially, without being able to control that, rendering somebody ineffective at maintaining the ability to hit a target, no matter how good of a shooter they are. So, just like the internet, 
somebody's going to say, well, then why not just get a 10-mile-an-hour gun and call it good? Well, you can do that, and some people do. In fact, when you look at the numbers, the 300 Win Mag shoots the same bullets as a 308, you know, five, 600 feet per, cent faster, feet, per, feet per second faster. And you start to have hit probabilities in the hundreds, you know, reach out by several hundred yards. And that's why people shoot 300 wind mags instead of 308s in um, scenarios where that matters now. But the higher the wind number usually correlates to a more challenging to shoot rifle. And that's where the balance becomes tricky. A high wind number largely means you're shooting out something that's heavier and you're shooting that heavier thing faster, which translates to more recoil. Being able to shoot it and apply fundamentals will allow you to manage that recoil better. And the more you practice, the better that'll get. But again, it comes down to practice and understanding what you're looking for. But I think if you're going to make a decision on what caliber to shoot, you should probably look at the win number instead of the minutiae that you can load between in terms of velocity because for the most part we're able to measure the distance and because of that we could tell you the drop exactly. What you can't tell is the wind variation and to give yourself a wind reading budget that's effective. Let's say the top PRS shooters are, are judging in that two, two and a half miles an hour zone. Other people are largely in the five mile an hour zone. That means that you're going to have, for an average shooter, you're going to have to add two MOA to a target to be able to hit it with an average wind call ability. And that's, that's only an average one. So adding two MOA on top of, you know, you're talking about three, four MOA to be able to start doing those wind calls. It might play in your favor to have something heavier, have a six mile an hour gun or a seven mile an hour gun eight mile an hour gun and learn to shoot it rather than a slow a slower gun. Therefore, the common advice of get a two two three trainer or get a three oh eight trainer goes against everything that I've learned studying for Assassin's Way and thinking about the science of ballistics and practical shooting. Why? Because the mile an hour of those guns is so low that you're going to be missing targets more often than hitting them. And so you won't be able to know whether it's your fundamentals or your wind calling ability. Rather, I think you should be shooting a 6 mil or a 6.5 and training with that. A 6.5 Creedmoor is an excellent trainer. It's an excellent rifle in terms of recoil and it'll teach you on a reasonable size plate how to make wind calls, because in order to learn, you have to know that you will hit if you do everything right. And with a 308 or a 223 at distance, you lose that ability to say, if I do everything correctly, I will hit that target. There's always the element of hit probability that you've completely lost with the 308 and the 223 at distance, and you need distance to practice your wind calls. Another thing it'll do is teach you that squeaking out an extra 20, 30, 
60 feet per second is going to do absolutely nothing for your shooting. And so get a load that works in a reasonable velocity bracket and just go shoot. Pick a thing that you're going to train that day and go train it. But train it in a zone that if you do everything correctly, you'll have a 100% hit rate. That's going to teach you what you're doing wrong and how to progress forward. I'm going to end off with a section of Ryan Kleckner's book called Acceptable Error because I think it's pretty, pretty sick and it hits the nail on the head. It's not difficult to find a shooter that can shoot prettier, smaller groups than I can. I, instead, pride myself on the ability to see a target and hit a target under real-world conditions. I would rather shoot one MOA groups at 100 yards and be able to engage and hit a target at different distances on demand and quickly than shoot a quarter MOA group at 100 yards but take forever to hit a target at distance because I have to get everything situated and calculated just right. Many of you will disagree with me and instead want extreme accuracy over functional accuracy. Even if it takes you five times longer to hit the target and you'll only consider taking the shot in a perfect prone or bench rest position, that's okay. I see both expectations of shooting as different styles of shooting. Neither one is better. Shooting groups gets boring for me. I want to know that I can hit a pie play sized target at 500 yards while I'm freezing cold, leaning up against a tree, and I need to shoot quickly. My style of shooting won't win bullseye competitions, but it's useful when hunting or in a tactical environment. Your mileage may vary. Shooting from alternate, less stable positions is a true test of marksmanship. Once my students start becoming proficient at maintaining one MOA of accuracy out to medium distances, I have them try shooting from alternate positions. Unstable positions do two things. They magnify errors in the fundamentals of shooting, and they wreck whatever confidence was built up in the students. Although my intent was never to make students feel bad about their abilities, the rude awakening from unstable positions does help me teach. First, by magnifying their errors, I am able to easier diagnose what they need to fix. For example, a shooter who is jerking the trigger, who has bad follow-through, might be able to hide their bad habits when their rifle is on stable ground. When they're in an unstable position, however, it's very easy for both of us to see when they flinch or do something else they shouldn't do. Second, by wrecking their confidence, they're more willing to improve. I know this sounds harsh, but there's predictable learning curve when it comes to shooting. Many of us think that we're already experts and unwilling to listen. It's a guy thing. Shooters can get 80% of their ability capacity fairly easy. If, they never, if they're never taken out of their steady and prone comfort zone, they'll never see how much they have to improve. And without knowing how much they can improve, they're less likely to go back to the basics and focus on the fundamentals. I think this is awesome because it does exactly 
what I'm trying to do, says what I'm ex- trying to do, and um, I think it's I think it's spectacular. With context to the material that we covered before, let's look back at that 500-yard pie plate. A five-mile-an-hour gun is going to have five-tenths of wind budgeted if you make a perfect wind call. Now, that doesn't give him a whole lot of budget, assuming he can shoot one MOA. He has to make a 100% perfect wind call, which is why I think that that's very hard to do. A pie plate, though, is two and a half MOA at 500 yards, my guess anyway. So in a two and a half MOA target, we've got about five-tenths of wind budget. Now, depending on what you're shooting at 500 yards, let's say you're shooting a five-mile-an-hour gun, you've got five miles per hour to play with. Well, five miles an hour is a low-confidence wind call. But if you're shooting something that's two and a half miles an hour, now your, your wind call variation is more in the two and a half, which is pretty hard to do. Right? And if you're shooting something like a two two three, that's even that could be even less than that, say a two mile an hour gun, now your chances of hitting that are even smaller. That's why rather than focusing on the standard internet external ballistics, I think a shooter should first look at what they want to do and then what their potential wind speed is. Once they've figured out the wind number that they want to be shooting, find what they can get. If you can't find a wildcat cartridge or you don't know how to hand load, but you have access to another more or less similar caliber that you can buy factory ammunition for, there you go. That's what you want to shoot because in the end, you want to have ammunition and you want to have the fundamentals so that you have the confidence that Ryan Kleckner does that at 500 yards from any position, you can hit a pie plate very quickly. That seems like a great rifleman's test and one that at a future match, I'm going to have the Kleckner stage, which will be 500 yard shots very quickly at pie plates. If you like this, please share. I gave you my email, chrisrway at gmail.com. Give me feedback, ask me questions, do whatever you want, uh, but you know, understand that that's my personal email. And then um, if you don't like it, thanks for listening anyway. If you want to support this more than sharing it with your friends and spreading the word grassroots, you can go to riflecraft.com and you can get yourself a subscription and start tracking your fundamentals on our targets. Yes, they're free, but you have the option of subscribing and gaining some functionality. But more than that, you're supporting the cause. And at the moment, that's all we have in terms of offering a way for you to show support towards this. It ends up being like buying me like two beers a month. So it's really not that much. But I understand. And um, really, I just want to grow the listener body and the community and share good stuff. So let me know if what I'm sharing is good.